Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Sermon title this morning is Sorrow, Repentance, and Salvation. We're going to get sad for a little bit, along with the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 9. Chapter 9, but on the back side of sorrow is joy. I said last week that the Christian life is intended to be a life of joy with seasons of lament. It's not intended to be a life of lament with only seasons of joy. So, with that in mind, it is important to consider that lament is a part of the Christian life. It's not the status quo, it's not the normal experience of the Christian life. But we don't live in a fantasy land, we do live in a world, and in a world at war. And there's people that hate you. There's an enemy who hates you. Conflict is inevitable. Thorns and thistles are there for us right around the corner. Life is difficult. And if you don't know that life is difficult, newsflash, life's hard. Life's very difficult. There's a lot of joy. And that should be the modus operandi of the Christian is a life of joy. That's, That's how we function. That's how we operate. But we also recognize pain and grief and difficulty. We recognize sin when we see it. We repent of it, we're sorrow, sorrowful over it, and we turn to Jesus, and He takes care of it. Let's go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Again, the sermon title this morning is Sorrow, Repentance, and Salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we need wisdom, we need guidance this morning. Thank you that the overwhelming majority of the Christian life is one of joy, and even through seasons of difficulty, we have you with us. You're with us in the fire, you're with us through the flood. You're faithful in any and every circumstance, and we say with the psalmist that we've been young, we've been old, we've never seen the righteous forsaken. And yet, there is a time and place for us to be broken, for us to lament over sin. There's a time of repentance and a turning from the way that we have lived, and we want to turn in every area that we need to turn. We don't want to be set in our ways, unwilling to repent. We don't want to walk like Israel walked. So help us in every area that we can. Give us eyes to see, not through condemnation, but through conviction. Give us eyes to see the ways that we need to turn and walk in a different way. Lead us today. I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you never have seasons of lament and sorrow and sadness, there's something that is profoundly wrong because you're probably living in this idea of Care Bear Land or Fantasy Land and you're probably not dealing with the difficulties of life. If you never allow yourself to be brokenhearted, if you never see in your life righteous indignation over sin, if you never experience grief or loss or pain, then, my gosh, there's a spider crawling all over me right now. Hold on. Brandon. Brandon George is the guy for spiders. He loves spiders. Kidding. He hates spiders. So if you never experience a full range of emotions, you're, you know, if you, if you uh, never experience grief, you actually end up disobeying God and stunting your spiritual growth because there's some things in life that can only come through facing the difficulty, facing the pain head on and seeing God faithfully walk, through you, walk with you through it. On the other side of difficulty, you see the faithfulness of God, you see that God sustains, He helps you, He strengthens you, He gives you what you never thought you would have or need. And he gives it to you. He supplies all your needs. 
And so there's some things in life you just have to face head on. There's some brokenheartedness that you have to run towards, not away from. Uh, in this same month in the book of Nehemiah, we just got through this last week where they were saying, after hearing the law of God preached and spoken and taught, Nehemiah and the leaders were saying, don't in any way be sorrowful. Have joy, feast, eat good food, drink good wine, celebrate, dance, party, celebrate, for God is with you. The wall is built. God's faithfulness is seen. It's on display. He brought you out of Babylon and into Jerusalem. Celebrate the faithfulness of God. The promises of God are yes and amen. But in this very same month, just a couple weeks later, we're going to see this side of lament. We're going to see sorrow. And the people of God are going to repent over generational sins. They're first going to see them. I mean, it's like their eyes are wide open. They're going to see, look what we have done. Look what our fathers and look what their fathers and look what the generations of God's people, our people, have done to God. God has been so faithful and yet we have turned time and time again away from God, away from His commandments. God has remained faithful all these years and look what we have done. We see clearly what God has done, true and faithful over and over again and we see what we have done and we have walked in the ways of falsehood and we have sinned and rebelled against him and they're going to they're going to weep they're going to lament they're going to for a week long period they're just going to be so sad about what they had done and what their fathers had done to a holy god and we're going to go along with them and we're going to walk with them we're going to sit with them for a little bit and then we're going to turn to Jesus and we're going to have some really good news at the end of this and so this is one of those sermons where you kind of hang on you feel the weight of sin and generational problems and issues that, are, that Israel have felt. And then you look at our lives and look at the lives of, of the Christian world. And you say, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to repent of too. And we're going to sit in that with them for a minute. And then we're going put to a, put a spotlight on Jesus and we're going to have a whole lot of good news. There's quite a different scene as we introduce this chapter. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to have a lot of reading today, but that's going to be okay. Because we like hearing God speak, don't we? And so that's all right. Verse 1, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled, 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 assembled with fasting and in sackcloth with earth on their heads. The feast or the festival of tabernacles or booths is over. And the people of God have gone from joy and feasting to fasting, sackcloth, dirt, and mourning. And so the question is, why? Why is the scene so different from one chapter to the next? Well, we get to see in verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and they worshipped the Lord their God. We find out why. They had gone from feasting to fasting, from joy to mourning. It was because of sin. It was because of their sin and the sins of their fathers. On the backside of joy, a couple weeks later, they experience with the law of God, what the law of God does, it cuts to the heart. And they recognized, we have sinned against God. And it's not just we who had sinned against God. Our fathers who slayed the prophets who promised to obey the commandments of God. We and our fathers have sinned against God. They were broken hearted over the sins of the generations. 
And this was not the kind of sorrow that doesn't lead to the repentance. It's not the kind of sorrow that feels bad about something on a Sunday morning and walks out the doors and the rest of the week, that grief that was there on Sunday morning, that conviction over a particular sin or a pattern of sin that was there on Sunday morning, you walk out the doors and then it's gone. You forget about it until the next week or six months later or until eventually your conscience is seared and you just accept that. This was kind, the kind of sin, the kind of brokenheartedness and the kind of repentance that led to action. It led to change. This was a deep, deep, corporate confession of sin. God, we have sinned against you. And it's not just I, it's my fathers and my fathers and their fathers who have rebelled. It was the kind of sorrow that led to action. And that's the good kind of sorrow. Uh, sorrow that's temporary, that doesn't do anything, that doesn't produce anything, it replicates itself. And it leads to more sorrow that doesn't go anywhere. We have to have directional sorrow. Sorrow that just sits and wallows is the kind of sorrow that never leads to repentance. Wallowing before the Lord is not the same thing as accepting forgiveness from God. And repentance in the Christian life shouldn't be where we just wallow and wallow and wallow and wallow. It should be directional, and that's what we see with this. Where we bring it to the Lord and say, Heavenly Father, I'm, I want to be done with this. Give me the strength. Give me the band of brothers or sisters to come and help me, help me with this. I need help. I want to be done with this. It's the kind of sorrow that, that moves. It doesn't just sit. And that's what we see here. And then God speaks. Look at verse 3. And they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. We just saw this. For a quarter of it. They made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. So six hours, the law of God is being preached. And in this six hours, could have been in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It could have been Exodus. They're, they're hearing from the word of God. And they hear for six hours. And then they respond with six hours of confession and worship. And I love this because it wasn't only confession. It, confession, it was paired with worship. You hear God speak, you recognize that you've sinned, you mourn, you weep, you confess, God, we have broken your law. And for six hours, the massive group of people, the massive congregation confesses, and then they worship. They worship the Lord their God. When you know God, you're free to confess your sins and worship in the same moment. You, you know, when you've sinned and you come before the Lord, there's always this pattern that has to be broken in the Christian life where you feel like you've got to start doing a little bit better before you pray. So you got to have some time after confession where you feel like, okay, now I'm, I'm on the right track again. Now I feel a little bit more comfortable at, you know, at a conscious level. I can come before the Lord and I feel a little bit better because I'm doing a little bit better now. I've got a little bit of a gap between when I, I blew it again and I'm coming back before him. i got to kind of prove myself. That's the lie of the devil. The devil does not want you, and the flesh doesn't want you to come and approach the throne of grace boldly. So I love that together with the confession, there's worship. And, th and that's how we are always when we're confessing sin. We're coming, we're, we're feeling ashamed, but we're also grateful for God's grace, but also feel like, but why, I, shouldn't ex I, I shouldn't be walking in the grace of God right now. I just blew it again. And then we're worshiping at the same time. God, I'm sorry. I know I shouldn't feel like that. I love your grace. Thank you. I don't want to bemoan your grace or, or, or put it off. We have the, we're just this mixture of emotions. And here, there's confession and worship. Six hours. Six-hour worship service. They're not cared about. They don't care about getting to the golden corral. The golden corral never runs out of food. There's going to be food there when you get there. 
I don't know what it is, but something happened a few years ago when I was younger. I didn't like buffet-style food, you know, restaurants. You know, you see it, it's, you know, usually, like the boomers in the room, you guys love, love the cattle trough food places, you know? Like my dad always, it was the Sizzler, you know, we'd go to the Sizzler, we'd go to Western Sizzling, and I'd go get my eggs at the salad bar and like a few pieces of ham. I just didn't like going to the Sizzler. Tell you what, if you've not been to Golden Corral lately, it's something to behold. I'm just, like, something happened to me, I don't know, but I go in there like, my gosh, this place is awesome. It's so great. They're not concerned about that, though. They're confessing and they're worshiping. And you can almost imagine their prayers. God, we've done it again. We did what our fathers did and their fathers did. Even as your people have sinned against you, we have not loved you as we, sh- as we should have. We have killed the prophets, ignored your word. We've been slow to obey. We've been complaining people. We have not cared about your name or your glory. Yet, God, you have been faithful. You're still our God. You're still with us. We can't shake you. You've kept your word and preserved a remnant for yourself. You have not cast us away, even though we have walked away time and time again. You can almost hear it. You can hear them on their knees. You can hear them with, with dirt on their head and sackcloth and ashes. And they're, they're in sorrow and yet worshiping God. God, thank you so much. Even though we have sinned, we're worshiping you because you are faithful. For six hours. And then we see the worship leaders. We see those who are leading them in this. And we see that there are specific people that are helping. And look at verse 4 and 5. Helping the people of God through this. Now. Phonics. I wrote it down. I broke down the words and the names. On the stairs the Levites stood. Jeshua, Benai, Gadmiel, Shinbaniah, uh, Buni, Sherebiah. Bani and Chinani, Chin and I, and they cried with a loud voice to their Lord God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah stood up and said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. The worship leaders encourage the people of God to stand up and to praise the Lord God. They direct their praise to God, and then they start to give the reasons. Now, hang with me. We're going to read from verse 6 all the way through 15. And here's what's going to happen the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter, there's going to be a pattern. Here's what God has done, and here's what we have done. God has been faithful, we have been unfaithful. And you see this pattern as we read through this. God, you have done this, you have done this, you have done this, you have done this. We have done this, we have done this, we have done this, we have done this. Look at verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that are in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made a covenant to give his offspring the land, the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Amorite, the Pezzarite, and the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. 
And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against the Pharaoh and against his servants and all the people of his land. And you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on the dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. But a pillar of cloud, you led them into the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light them for the way in which they should go. And you came down from Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. And you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the stock for their thirst. And you told them to go out of a rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. This is what God has done. In the list that these worship leaders presented for the people of God, and kiddos, you can listen in on this, listen to all that God had done for them. God created the heavens of the earth. God created everything. Everything you see exists because God has made it, or he has gifted men and women with their minds to use creation and build something out of it. But there's nothing in this world that doesn't exist directly or indirectly because of God. God is the creator of all things. So God created all things. God chose Abraham or Abram and called him, and Abram left not knowing where he was going. And then God gave him and his wife Sarai a new name, Abram and Abraham and Sarah. And God gave them a land. And then sent his people into Egypt, into slavery, and then 400 years later brought them out of Egypt. And then God brought his people through the Red Sea. And the enemies of God who pursued them, who were after them, you mess with God, you end up in the bottom of the sea. They end up at the bottom of the sea. Pharaoh's army, the strongest army in the known world, end up in the bottom of the Red Red Sea. And God had made a name for himself. The worship leaders reminded them that God had led them in the wilderness with a cloud by day and fire by night. He reminded them that God had given them the law through Moses on Mount Sinai. He reminded them that it was God who gave them bread from heaven and satisfied their thirst. He reminded them that he had brought them into the promised land. And it's almost like the worship leaders are saying, not almost, it is what the worship leaders are saying. Look what God has done for us. Look how faithful he has been. And if you bring this down even just to your personal life, you can think about this corporately and personally. You've got your list as well. Look what God has done. Look how faithful he is. And if you can't see it, you're not looking hard enough. You look back and you see, you know what? God has been with us thus far. That's what Samuel said at one point. I think it was 1 Samuel, somewhere in 1 Samuel. Thus far, thus far God has been with us. God has been with you. He is faithful. And this is what he's reminding the people of. God has been faithful to you. Remember everything he's done. He is with you. He is for you. He has been faithful. But then, in this time of sorrow, in the time of lament, we have to consider what the people did. And we have to consider, consider the frailty and even the indwelling sin that we have even to this day. Even as spirit-filled believers, we still have indwelling sin. 
And there's indwelling sin to continue to bring to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know you dealt with this. Now continue to break its bondage. Continue to deliver me out of this. Look at verse 16. The transition. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Just pause real quick. This is what they're thinking about. This is why they're brokenhearted. We have not obeyed God. God has been so faithful, and we keep turning our back on Him. He keeps providing for us, and we keep turning our back and walking away. He keeps being faithful. He keeps pursuing us. He won't let us go away. And yet, we keep breaking His word. That this is what they're doing. They're confessing, God, we have broken. You've been so kind to us. And we've been so arrogant and proud. We've thought we knew better. Verse 17. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt. Return to their slavery in Egypt. But you're... But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. You're going to see this pattern continue for the rest of the chapter. The people of God did the opposite of what God did. God, you're faithful, but they and our fathers, and we're going to see even those who are praying this. Just in chapter 13, we're going to see the rebellion. It's so wild. They make a covenant and then they rebel just three chapters later. But they and our fathers stiffened their neck and did not obey God's commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders of God. They didn't care that God had put their enemies at the bottom of the sea. They stopped to dwell on that. They stopped to think about the power of God. They preferred Egypt. They preferred slavery in Egypt to the promised land. This is maniacal. This is, this is how blinding sin can be. That masses of people can prefer slavery as long as those who are enslaving them are giving some sort of security. We're seeing this today. There's massive amounts of people in America, the land of the free, who would willingly and gladly walk into slavery as long as people would promise them, here, I promise you won't have COVID. Here's our COVID-free camps with bars around it, and we'll send you there in train cars. And, okay, let's go. We'll, we're guaranteed to not get COVID. People preferred restricted freedoms for so-called security. Like You'll see these patterns, too, because history repeats itself. Those who do not know history are bound to repeat it. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. We'll surrender all of our pro private property to the government. The government never made a mistake before. But even in this rebellion here, even in this re preferring slavery to the promised land, even in that rebellion, God was still faithful. That's what it says. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. God was faithful. He's slow to anger. 
even when they made a golden calf and worshipped it. And Aaron said, I just, I, this calf just popped out. I, I don't know. It just, it just kind of happened. And when they were all declaring it was that calf that got us out. It was that calf that delivered us. It was that calf that's giving us the law. God was still faithful. Even in his righteous wrath as just anger, God was faithful. God still gave them manna. He still gave them water. He did not lack, let them lack in the wilderness. Listen to this, verse 18. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And it commanded great blasphemies. Committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them in the day, nor did the pillar of fire by night to light them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. God was faithful. It's just there's more and more and more grace. Even though there's rebellion and a breaking of God's law and a turning and walking away from Him, God's still faithful. There was no lack even in the wilderness. Their shoes didn't wear out. Forty years wearing the same shoes. I mean, if somebody could get a patent on that, you know, 40 years, one pair of shoes, you get those Vibram soles and they're supposed to last forever, and those Vibram soles will last a couple years, but not 40. 40 years. And the clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. My goodness, their clothes did not wear out over 40. God provided for them, but there's more grace. There's even more. Look at verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and a lot of... Like, let's listen to this. We rebelled. We wanted to go back to Egypt. Complained. Didn't even care that you just literally raised the sea walls. And we walked through. You killed the prophets. And yet, you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them every corner. So they took possession of the land. If Shion king of Heshbon, in the land of Og, king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land in which you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went out and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with kings and peoples of the land, that they may do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities, a rich land, and took possessions of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. The Canaanite cities were evil, wicked cities. And God... Through judging those evil, wicked cities, and by the way, he still does this. He still judge, judges nations. God still, that's not some Old Testament thing, now the New Testament thing. The nations are just you know, free to do whatever they want. God still judges nations. And sometimes we forget that because we live in this right now moment. And we look at things like, okay, wh why did the Soviet Union fall? They were judged by God. Why would this nation, if the nations rise and fall at the word of the Lord... If this nation's to fall, it's judgment upon this nation. Corporately, God still does that. Now, it's hard to nail down that's the judgment of God, that's the judgment of God. But when you look back in history, you can see the judgment of God throughout the world. God still judges nations. And so these Canaanite cities 
were pushed out and the people of God come in and they step in and God's like, here, this is your house, this is your land, this is your vineyard, it's free. But I didn't build this land. I didn't even, I, I don't have, cal, I've been walking around the desert eating manna for 40 years. I didn't even build this. And Joshua's like, no, come on, let's go. God parts the Jordan River again like he did the front end of the wilderness and the back end of the wilderness, parting of the waters. They walk through into the promised land. Here, houses, vineyards, cities, it's yours. And even though God's people went over and over again rebelling and like, no, no, Egypt, Egypt, Egypt. God's like, I have houses for you, dum-dum. I have houses for you and vineyards. I promised this land to Abram and his descendants. And, and by golly, you're going to have it here. It's yours. They didn't build them. They didn't possess them. God's always in the business of graciously lavishing his love and his gifts on his people. God was still faithful. God gave them kingdoms. They took possession of the land. God multiplied their children and grew them. God gave them houses, cisterns already. Imagine digging a cistern to put water in. That's, I mean, like pre-modern equipment, the difficulty it was to build the time it takes to grow a vineyard or an orchard. And that's a, a long process. Have you ever tried to grow even just a backyard garden? I mean, a well-grown orchard or vineyard, man, that, that is decades of work. Here, it's yours. They didn't deserve that. They didn't deserve any of that. In fact, they recognized this in the pattern of God's work, our work. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. Like, keep in mind the contrast here. Everything that God has done in the contrast with, nevertheless, they were disobedient. How quick the people of God are to turn aside. How quick the people of God are to take the good gifts of God and either misuse them or disregard them. Amen. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. And cast, their, cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Like, let that hover a little bit. The God who gave them all of that, and God's people looked at the law that was given to them, the gracious law that God had given them, and they're just like, wad that up, that tablet of stone, and throw it behind me. I don't care what God says. It doesn't matter. I've got mine. We've got our little piece here. We've got our 40 horse in a barn, and all that we need, so we're good. The pride and the level of sin is just, it's dark. 27, therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest... They did evil again before you. And then you abandoned them, and you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back to them, to, in order to turn back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. But sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. 
And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and they would not obey. Many years you bore with them, and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands, and nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious and merciful God. Even though there is more sin, they did not care about God's law. They were disobedient. They were rebellious. They were casting away the law. They even killed the prophets. And even through all of that, verse 31 is this astounding verse. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious God and merciful God. Now, this is amazing because God did give them over to their enemies to let them see what's the fruit of rebelling against me. And he rescued them out of the tragic tale that is people who claim to know God who walk counter to his law. Who don't want to obey, who rebel against him. Let's see, what, let's see how that works. How does it work when you go out and do things your own way? And on a mass scale, we see this with Israel. It was a time of rest and peace. God had given this to us. They, all right, things are good. We don't really have to cry out to the Lord anymore. We're good now. They start living their life, and quickly they come to ruin. Quickly they come to ruin. And God, even through that, would give them saviors, and then he would not utterly forsake them because he's gracious and merciful. And so these worship leaders bring them through all of this, and then they're going to pray, and then they're going to make a covenant. And I want, you to get, I want you to get this, because every generation of the people of God through the Old Testament think they're going to be the ones who finally do it. We're going to get this right. We're going to grieve over sin, we're going to have God's law in front of us, and we're finally going to do it. We're going to do this thing the right way. And we're going to make valiant claims to the Lord, and we're going to tell Him all the things that we're going to do for Him. And we're going to make a covenant with him. And we're going to declare that we're going to obey his commandments. And we're going to do this law. And we're going to uphold this side of the covenant, our side. God's faithful, okay, we're going to obey. God's faithful, we're going to obey. We're going to finally do this because all of our fathers, and up to this point in our life, we have failed. But no more. We're going to do this thing. Look at verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our princes and our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests... And our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and, admit, and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before him, they didn't serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves to this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we're slaves, and yet, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They're talking about still the Persian army who gave them permission to go back to Jerusalem. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on a sealed document are the names of our princes, 
our Levites and our priests. Now here's what you're going to see. There's a sin, there's sin that's acknowledged, and then God's faithfulness is acknowledged. It's like a summary of everything that's been said in chapter 9. They, even though they had done all of this, they're going to now make a covenant, and then we're going to see signers of the covenant. Now, even though the priests and all the leaders in the past, the fathers, had not kept your law, and the princes and the kings, now the princes, Levites, and our priests are going to lead our people into getting this thing right. The covenant is introduced. We're going to do better. And there's a group of signers. In chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through 26, you see all the names that are signed on this document. They all go through. We're going to make a covenant. We're going to all put our names, and we're going to be representative of the people of God, and we're going to do this thing. We're going to live out our side of the covenant, finally, and we're going to, we're going to make sure that we're walking in the ways of the Lord, and we're going to do things the right way. We're going to make these sacrifices in the right way. We're going to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength in the right way. We're going to honor, honor Him for His grace in the past and the mighty works that He had done, and we're going to even put our names to it. So they signed their names. And then we see, after the signers, we see the obligations of the covenant. We're going to see what they're committing to. What is it they're putting their name on? What is it they're committing to? Well, they're committing to honor the Lord, and they're putting their name to it. So they're going to make some promises. Look at verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land, to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. They come together, put their names on it. We're going to do all of the commandments and the rules and the statutes. We're going to do this thing. We're putting our name on it. This is what we're committing to. This is the covenant, the obligations of the covenant that they are signing on to. They're wanting to right the wrongs of previous generations up into their very generation. Verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land to take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we'll forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction, exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a part, third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular, regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for the work of the house of our God. We the priests, the Levites, the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring into the house of our God according to the fathers to our fathers' houses in times appointed year by year to burn the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of of our God, the firstborn of our sons of the cattle, and is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds, and of all our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough, and our contributions, and the fruit of every tree, the wine, and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from the ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. 
And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites. And when the Levites receive the tithes, and will receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tithe of the tithes, a, a tithe of the tithes to the house of our God and to the chambers of the storehouse for the people of Israel. And the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. It's pretty valiant. Pretty valiant. We're going to walk in God's law, verse 29. Verse 31, we will not neglect the house of our God. Make specific statements about the Sabbath. We're going to honor the Sabbath. We're not going to do any dealings on the Sabbath. They're going to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and His rules and His statutes. Now, three chapters later. Just three chapters later. Rebellion and corruption had returned to the house of the Lord. Listen to this. This is Nehemiah. He's back now after he'd done the work in Jerusalem. He goes back and he's serving with Artaxerxes again. He goes back to Persia and to Babylon. And here's word about what's going on back in Jerusalem. Verse 10, actually. I found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, and so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them, and I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrannius also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people in, of Judah and Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath? Then in verse 23, in those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't even speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted some of them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. You see, the end of chapter chapter 10 sounds so good. We're going to do this thing. We're going to honor the Sabbath. We're going to keep all the statutes and the laws. And it ends just a couple chapters later. Nehemiah hears, not very long after this, Nehemiah comes back and he has to give him a beatdown, a physical beatdown. How could you possibly be doing this? You're dishonoring the house of God, dishonoring the Sabbath, marrying your daughters off to pagans and teaching them their language? We're back here again? Don't you remember the revival that just happened? Don't you remember the promises you made to God? Even God's people, even God's people could not fully do what they promised to do. Sin remained the central issue. The people of God over and over again, read it through the whole Testament and you'll see Over and over again, the people of God fail to come through on their promises. They break God's law. They kill prophets. They wad up the law of God and throw it behind them. That we will not listen to you, prophets. 
they never fulfilled their side of the covenant. This was always the problem. They could never obey God rightly over a lifetime. How on earth would anybody, if they couldn't do it, how on earth would anybody be able to do it? And friends, this is like you sit in the sorrow and you think about God's good law and you think about the state. Don't measure yourself to other people. Measure yourself according to God's law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then evaluate. Like, yeah, yeah, you love God. We're Christians. Our heart, we've been born again. The Spirit of God lives with us, within us. Holy Spirit and dwelled believers. Still, couldn't we love God with more of our heart today? Or yesterday? Couldn't we have loved God with more of our soul, with all of our mind and our strength? We fall woefully short of that command. Like just the basic command, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet, there's always more. I never love him for any millisecond in the way that I should. And I have the Spirit of God within me. I, I am a, a, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And yet still... This week, I have not loved God in the way that he deserves to be loved. In this moment, I am hanging on the mercy of God. See, there is never a moment, ever, even as believers in Jesus, as we're walking, where our hope can be in what we do for the Lord. Ever. Not any moment. Let's think about Jesus. Jesus tells us this explicitly, and we see it. I love the connection to the Testaments. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. This is so important. This is so crucial. Jesus didn't come and say, like, oh, you remember all that law stuff, all the things the prophets said? That's really not that important. He didn't say that at all. There are certainly things that have passed away. We'll see this here in a second. In the law. But he didn't come and say, you know, they're, they're, you know the law... It's not, just try your best. No, he says, I have come to fulfill them. So he's hearing the law of God, and he's not wadding it up, stiffening his neck, and walking his own way in rebellion. He came to fulfill the law that the prophets had spoken, that the prophets had given. This was the very law of his heavenly father. This was the law of God, and he came to fulfill that law. I came to do it, to accomplish it. My people failed to accomplish it over and over again. I'm coming as fully God and fully man, and I'm going to fulfill this law. Praise the Lord. For truly I say to you, in heaven, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. All of the law had to be accomplished. And until all the law was accomplished, nothing passes away. When he accomplished it, the ceremonial aspect of the law does pass away. We're not going to the temple for sacrifices. He is the sacrifice once for all. And so when he fulfilled all of that, then and only then did anything in the law pass away. And still much of the law remains for us today. The moral law of God is for us. We see wisdom through ju judicial uh, uh, the judicial law in the Old Testament. Ju 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 judicial law in the Old Testament as well. But we know the one who has fulfilled the law. And it's not me. And it's not you. 
And as much as we come to him, even as spirit-led believers, wanting to make our vows and wanting to keep our promises to him, our hope is never in what we do for the Lord. It's always in. Every moment of every single day, even the best day of the week or the year, our hope is always in what Christ has done for us. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You need an alien righteousness. What I mean is, if you don't know the Lord today, your hope is not in the fact that you can or can't keep the commandments. You cannot keep the commandments of God. Newsflash. But Jesus came to fulfill the law. He kept the commandments. He set... He came and he fulfilled this side of the covenant, our side, God's side. God does all this. We're obligated to keep the law. They failed. Jesus came and he was the substitute covenant keeper. And so because of that, those who are in Christ, by virtue of his righteousness, are also counted as covenant keepers. We need what Jesus did. And Jesus came to do for people what the people could not do for themselves. They should have done it, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't keep their promises to God. So Jesus fulfills that side of the covenant as their substitute. And when we come together, we come together for covenant renewal gatherings. We're coming together for covenant renewal gatherings. Not to say, I'm going to do better, I'm going to do better, but we're coming, gathering around the body and the blood of Jesus, renewing this covenant, looking to the one who kept the law for us. And we're coming to declare together, we didn't do it. This isn't about us. This is about him. And I'm going to walk out those doors grateful, full of the Holy Spirit, thankful, and I'm going to live for his glory this week, and I'm going to do everything I can for him, but I'm going to trust him along the way. He's the one that fulfilled the law for me. We're coming together to remember and to declare together what Christ has done for his people. We do not set aside the work of Christ to declare with Israel, we got this. It sounds noble, it sounds good, it sounds like taking responsibility for your actions. No, Jesus, I got this. I'm going to do this. If I'm going to get to heaven, it's going to be through the blood of my hands. But it's only through the blood of Christ. And we come together to declare, he did this. It is finished. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We see your grace so clearly in Nehemiah. We see amazing things that you did in this book and in the history of Israel. And God, this has been the story of mankind. Recognizing their sin, but trying to take care of it themselves. Trying to fix it, clean themselves up, get the mud off, get the dirt off, get themselves out of the mess that they got themselves in. And God, corporately together, together, right now, we're, our attention is going to Jesus. And we want to think about the words we're going to sing. We want to think about the words that we just heard, your word. And we want to just be thankful, God, from sorrow to joy. And if there's anybody in here battling this indwelling sin, and that's all of us, by the way, the hope walking through these doors isn't our commitment to you. It's not, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. It's in what Christ has done for us. And help us turn our attention to Jesus. And break any bondage that we're dealing with. God, we want to obey you. We want to honor you. But we cannot do that on our own. We need your help. We turn our attention to Jesus who did 
fulfill the law. He didn't set the, set the law aside and say, no big deal. He came to fulfill the law. Jesus, we thank you for it. It's going to be our joy to sing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen.